It's a good day, amen? It's a great day to be a part of the family of God, knowing that our Savior is not in the grave, that He is alive, that He is more alive than ever before, and that He sits right now at the right hand of the Father where He is continually talking to God about us. Making intercession for us, pleading with God about us. He is talking to the Father about us. And you know, Easter is one of those holidays that is um, kind of a big deal. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, Easter has become a big deal. It's uh, got uh, lots of sales around it. It's kind of that holiday stuck in between the summer and um, Christmas. And so you're looking towards that. Kids know that school's getting close to getting out. That excitement of spring is in the air. And Easter is one of those stories that people know the story of Easter, but they may not know all the details of the story of Easter. And this morning, what I really want to do is I want to explore some details in the story of Easter and then find out what that means for you and for me. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you, a couple of things you can do. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. You can take that out and turn it to Mark chapter 15. Or if you've got a smartphone, there's an app on there you may have uh, called it's Version's Bible app. And there's a live tab on that. You can click on that and all the scripture we'll be reading is on there and some notes from today. You can use that. In Mark chapter 15, we're going to start our discussion of what happens here in verse 33. Now, there's a lot that's happened in Mark 14 and 15 before we get to verse 33. We've already, when we find ourselves in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, we've already seen Jesus betrayed by one of his best friends. We've already seen Jesus handed over to the authorities. We've already seen Jesus on trial for his life. We've already seen Jesus beaten. We've seen him scourged. We've seen him ridiculed. We've seen him mocked. We've seen him spat upon. As we get to verse 33, we have already seen Jesus have his arms nailed to a cross. Have the cross beam lifted up over the one that's already in the ground and lowered onto that and then his feet be nailed in. All of that's already happened. When we get to verse 33, we're in the final moments of the life of Jesus. At the sixth hour, it's in verse 33, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Verse 33 shows the displeasure God had at the world, if you will, for what was happening at the moment. Because of our sin, because of our corruption, because of what we had done and do, God had placed His own Son on the cross. And for three hours, darkness covered the land. Now the truth is, most of us don't understand real darkness. Even if we go out at night, there's street lights there. We have lights in our home. We don't understand what darkness is. Anybody lost electricity recently or had it happen? There's nothing worse than losing electricity when it's dark. 
you know, uh, a few weeks ago, it, it wasn't really dark, but it was moving that direction. We lost electricity for an extended period of time. And uh, you just realize how much stuff in your life is dependent upon that. Uh, we didn't have anything that we could make or fix for supper that didn't have to be cooked. And so I went to Publix. Because you've got to go to the grocery store, right? Well, then you forget they don't have electricity either. And they had generators running, and they had only a few things. And so we ended up with, like, I don't know, bread sandwiches for tonight, that night. But when it gets dark and there are no lights, it's dark. I read this week about an expedition to Antarctica that happened in the early 1900s. And as they, their plan was to, to sail across around the island, and something happened, and they got dislodged. And the crew ended up being in darkness for weeks. You see, in Antarctica, apparently, the sun goes down around March and doesn't rise again until September. And they said the biggest thing they faced were people going absolutely crazy because of no light. In Scripture, darkness is a clear symbol of the absence of the Almighty. And so in verse 33, what you have is God showing the displeasure that He has toward the world about this event. Verse 34. This is the first detail I really want to focus on. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi! Lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of the last sayings of Jesus. And what we're going to get to today in looking at it briefly is, what Jesus says in those words has significant impact on the value of your life. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's literally saying is, God, why have you turned your back upon me? Now, it is a reference to a psalm that was referencing the fact that God would send one who would be cast out and that God would allow one to come and be forsaken. But the point is that at this moment in history, because of the sin that you and I have committed, because of the wrongs that we have done, at that moment in history, God turned his back on his son. The truth is, sometime today, I could say something that in this room, some of you would get mad about. And if I walked out the door and, you know, afterwards I'm going to be standing out back and you come by and you shake my hand and you get really mad, you might walk up to me and say, Pastor, I just want you to know I'm really mad. I never want to talk to you again. I never want to see you again. Thank you. Good day. Now, if that happens... I'm going to be a little upset. I'm not going to like that. But now imagine if the random person walking up to me is not just anybody, but it's my wife, Susan. And if my wife, Susan, walked up to me and said, Lyle, because she doesn't call me pastor, Lyle, you have made me mad. I never want to see or talk to you again. You think there's going to be a difference in the way I feel that if it's a random person and my wife? Absolutely. Why? Because of the depth of the relationship I have with her. Here's what I want you to realize. 
from before time began. In all eternity past, God the Father and God the Son had a perfect relationship with one another. From before, we can, e- we can even comprehend what eternity past is. But forever, God the Father and God the Son had a perfect relationship, never marred by sin, never marred by bad judgment, never marred by suspicious thoughts. Everything was perfect in their relationship with one another. They had built a lives where they were revolving around one another. God the Father and God the Son had the most perfect relationship that had ever or will ever exist in the history of the world. You agree with that? Good. And at this moment in history, God can no longer look at His Son. Here's the bad news for us. You want to know how serious our problem with sin is? With doing things wrong? With making mistakes? That our sin was so severe that it caused a momentary rift in the eternal relationship of God the Father and God the Son. Now here's the good news on that. They both thought that your life was worth it. They both, God the Father and God the Son, considered your life so valuable that they were willing for that to take place in order to have a relationship with you. Now, here's the deal. There are times in our lives when we feel like our lives are completely insignificant or that God has abandoned us. When work's not exactly going the way you want it to go, when family is tearing down around you, when brothers and sisters are falling apart, when children are running away, when parents are doing things we don't understand, when life in general is just messed up. I read this week something that said that suffering can be defined as when life doesn't match the expectations that we built up. And so things in your lives are just tearing apart. And it's easy in the midst of that, at the death of a loved one, or an addiction that finds itself in your family, or a problem that comes up, or something you can't get rid of, or the fabric of a relationship tearing apart, or work its just going in a direction you hate. It's easy in those moments to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in those moments is when we remember these words. And in remembering these words, we're reminded that God hasn't forsaken us. In fact, He forsook His own Son for a moment for us. Verse 35. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine and vinegar, put it on a stick, offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard this cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, here's a little detail I want us to look at. It's in verse 38. And it seems like kind of an obscure thing here that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Mark here is telling us that we have to understand the significance of this event as it ties to Jesus' death. For the readers that were reading this originally, the first people to put their hands on this copy of what happened in Jesus' life, if they were Jewish believers, they would have been astonished that at the moment Jesus died, the veil was torn. Now here's the reason. From the moment human beings first created sin, first sinned, did anything wrong, from that moment, God had to shelter himself from us and us from himself. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They eat the fruit, right? Not supposed to eat the fruit. They eat the fruit. Eve eats first, gives it to Adam. Adam eats. God comes, starts walking. And what does Adam say? We were scared, so we hid. Well, why did you hide? Well, because we don't have any clothes on. And that apparently is a bad thing. Well, how did you know that? Did you eat? And they eat, okay? So what does God do? God pronounces judgments upon the man, upon the woman that we're still living out today, and upon the serpent, right? And then what does he do? Does he let them live in Eden the rest of the time? No. What does he do? He banishes them and says, I still love you, but you can no longer be in my presence like you've been. So he banishes them from the garden. He puts a flaming guardian in front. When it's time for the Israelites to become a nation, they they build this traveling worship center called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, it's very clear that not everybody can go in, that there has to be distance between the people and God. And so they create this area where only certain people can go in. And when they build a permanent home where they quit using the tent and they use a permanent home called the temple, they build three different sections. There's the court of the Gentiles, which was for everyone that wasn't a Jew. You had the court that was for the Jews uh, that were uh, kind of okay with God at the moment. And then there was this place in the middle called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, one man could go in one day a year, and that was it. There are ancient stories about the fact that um, nobody else could go in. So they would tie a string to his foot. So if the priest who was in the Holy of Holies on his one day of the year were to die, they could just pull him out. To enter into the Holy of Holies, the priest would prepare for a week. He would be away from everything. He couldn't be around other people. They would slide his food to him in a solitary confinement kind of place. And on the day he was supposed to go in, after staying up all night praying and reading the Bible, he would bathe, put on a fresh, brand new linen garment, go into the Holy of Holies, offer a sacrifice for his sin, walk out, bathe again, put on another new coat, go back in, offer sacrifice for the priest, walk back out, bathe completely head to toe again, put on a brand new cloak, go back in and offer sacrifice for the people. It was a place for one person, one day a year, at their absolute cleanest. And guess what stood in front of the Holy of Holies? A huge curtain. At the exact moment that Jesus died, that curtain split from top to bottom. And it was almost as if in that moment, God was revealing his heart all along. My heart is to be with my people. For you to have access to me, but it had to come through the sacrifice of my son. You see, this story tells us not only that our 
life is not futile, but that my failures are not fatal. And there's one little detail in verse six, chapter 16. Turn to chapter 16. There's one little detail in here that helps us to see how much God cares for each individual. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, when the Sabbath was over. So this, that all happened on Friday. Saturday is the Sabbath. Nobody does anything on the Sabbath. The night comes. Then the Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. They didn't get to finish the job because the Passover, I mean the Sabbath was coming. So they had to get it done. And just in case we don't know when they went, it tells us in verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. I love how Mark gives those details. Because for some people, very early is like 12 o'clock in the afternoon, right? How many of you here are not morning people? All right, good. So very early is just after sunrise. For you non-morning people, that's when very early is. All right, when I was a teenager, very early was if I got up before noon on Saturdays. All right, this is very early, just after sunrise. They're on their way to the tomb and they ask each other, who will roll the stone away? But they looked up. They saw the stone, which had been large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were frightened. And you would be too. If you walked into a tomb and there's somebody that was not in the tomb to start with in a glowing white garment, you're going to be scared. And he says, don't be scared. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay them, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, here's the thing I want you to notice about this. This is the little detail I want you to see. It's in verse 7. It says, tell his disciples and Peter. Let me ask you a quick question. Was Peter a disciple? Yeah. So if he had just said, go tell the disciples, would they have told Peter? Yeah, because Peter was a disciple. Let me give you two things that helps me to understand this passage a little better. First of all, you have to know that Mark is the shortest gospel. It's the shortest one. Mark is one of those action kind of guys. Let's get to the action. He doesn't tell the story of the birth of Jesus. He doesn't, want, he doesn't have time for that. He starts with Jesus out ministering, going, let's go. His stories often, you know, I'm writing for uh, school still, and they always talk about make sure your transitions flow. Make sure you have good transitional sentences. Use words like consequently, therefore. Mark doesn't do that. It's just Jesus did this, Jesus did that. Then Jesus went here, after that Jesus did this. He just doesn't use many words. He's just to the point. Anytime he gives a detail that's unnecessary, you need to pay attention. Here's the second thing we know. Most scholars believe that this writing of Mark is actually the personal testimony of Peter. Peter and Mark ended up working together, doing mission work, and most of them believe that Mark wrote down Peter's version of the story. So when you get to this part that says, Go tell the disciples and Peter. You realize the personal nature of what happened. Now let me ask you a question. What had Peter just done? Like two days before. He denied Christ, right? I don't know him, never knew him. In fact, he got so mad he started cussing. He started 
telling him to get away. He almost got violent. I mean, this is Peter. You talk about a guy that has run the gamut of emotions. You went from uh, pure gratitude with Jesus when he's getting his feet washed to the, they come to arrest him, and he gets so mad that he chops off the guy's ear. To a few minutes later, he's put his sword away and he's around the campfire trying to hear and he starts denying everything that's going on. He has been from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And I can imagine the low he was on when he realized the friend that he had betrayed was dead. And his Friday night turned into Saturday and Saturday turned into Saturday night and Saturday night turned into Sunday. The emotion or turmoil was just boiling inside of him. He had betrayed Jesus. You ever been betrayed? You ever had a coworker do something that they shouldn't do behind your back? You ever had a friend who you thought was really a good friend that did something that they shouldn't have done? You ever had a spouse that walked out on you or started seeing someone else? You ever a boyfriend or girlfriend that you thought this was the one or at least was on the right path to being the one and they abandoned you for somebody else? You ever had a church? treat you in a way that churches shouldn't treat you. You ever been betrayed? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been the one that did the betraying? Maybe not on purpose. Maybe it was accidental. Maybe it was just slipped your mind. Maybe it was unintentional, but you betrayed them. What happens here, it's almost as if one writer says, the angels are sitting on the clouds looking over and cannot wait for them to go get Peter and say, it's okay. Because of what Christ has done, it's okay. Can I just tell you something real quickly? You may have messed up your life in a major way. Multiple times. There's nothing that you can do that equals betraying God Himself at His hour of deepest need. No matter what you've done, you don't find yourself in any worse shape than Peter. And yet the first thing this angel wants to let everybody know when Jesus has come out of the grave is go get Peter. His failure is not final. And here's the last thing we're going to see. Not only is our Life not feeling our failures aren't final, but death is not final either. Verse 6. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. I love how other versions of this and the other Gospels say, Why do you look for the living among the dead? The truth is that the most important fact in the history of the world is whether or not verse 6 and 7 are true. For you see, if Jesus is alive, it changes everything. And nothing else matters. And the truth is, if Jesus is not alive, it changes everything. I mean, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are wasting our time. I'm wasting my life. Wasting my family's life. I'm playing a game that doesn't matter. I have no hope. I'm to be pitied more than any other man. That's just some of the things Paul said. But if he did, then our only response to him is to follow him completely. I want you to notice something about the book of of Mark. 
If you've got some later translations of Mark, uh, it may have a special note above Mark 16, 9 through 20, or it may not even be there. It may be a footnote. Here's the reason. Most people, with all the stuff that we've been able to gather over these years, um, say that, that verses 9 through 20 weren't in what Mark originally wrote. Okay? So I'm not being sacrilegious here, but I want you to take your hand. If it has, if your Bible has with everything else, Mark 16, 9 through 20, I want you to take your hand and I want you to put it over it and cover it up. Okay? Now here's the reason. Because if that's true, look how the book of Mark ends in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's kind of a strange ending, isn't it? I mean, the other Gospels have him showing up to everybody else, talking to people, telling them to go into all the nations. Mark just says, these women didn't know what to do. There's been a lot of speculation over the years about why that is. Here's why I think. I think it's the ultimate cliffhanger for you and for me. You know a good cliffhanger, right? It ends at a time, leads the decision up to the audience. Um, one of my favorite movies of the last... Uh, a year or two is the movie Inception. How many of you have seen Inception? Right? I love the ending of that movie. Now, there are some people that cannot stand the ending of that movie. All right? If you've seen it, how many of you like the ending? How many of you didn't like it? All right. Here's why I like it. It's because it's the ultimate cliffhanger. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. All right? It's the ultimate cliffhanger. It leaves you guessing. Chapter 16, verse 8. This is what I believe. Now, when it says that, he's basically turning it over to you and asking you, what are you going to do with the story of Jesus? What are you going to do with what's just been laid out? The truth is, there are two groups of people here today, and both of you have a decision to make. The first group is people, and maybe you're here because it's Easter, and that's what, in America, that's what we do on Easter. You go to church. That's how you celebrate Easter, and then you go eat some ham and some potatoes and do an Easter egg hunt, and that's what we do. Maybe that's who you are, and you, you've never investigated or thought about whether or not Jesus really rose from the grave, or you've thought about it, but you thought it's not that, that important. Here's what I'd ask of you today. If that's, if that's you, perhaps today is the day to really begin to investigate whether or not this is it. I mean, if there are people who say that this is the most important event in the history of the world it probably considers or deserves consideration. So if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, would you think about investigating that? Maybe you, maybe you feel like the Lord is saying, I need you to go investigate that. In just a moment, we're going to stand up and sing again. I'm going to be standing here and you can come talk to me and just tell me kind of that's on your heart. The second group of people are people that are believers in Jesus. And here's what I want to say to you. With the knowledge of all that Christ did for us, how have you lived for Him? Romans chapter 12 talks about verses or chapters 1 through 11. says all that stuff that we talked about with Jesus and the cross and God turning His back on His Son and rising from the grave and paying the penalty for our sin and the veil being torn and saying, and Peter, and put your own name in there, and saying, go tell, and wow, go tell them. With all that God has done for you, now is the time to give your life for Him. Not a portion, not a part, not a little bit, 
your life. And just in case we miss that, he says, give your life as a sacrifice, completely burned up for him. Living, pleasing, holy. The idea there is, if God cares about you this much, if God loves you this much, shouldn't you devote your life to Him? I was watching uh, on YouTube this week some great endings to movies and movie history. Just Googling that kind of stuff, looking it up, watching what you can on YouTube. Now, I ran across a movie that came out several years ago now, over a decade ago now. Uh, came out in the late 90s called Saving Private Ryan. How many of you have seen that? I know I'm just asking if you've seen movies. How many of you have seen it? Okay. Saving Private Ryan is an emotional movie, great movie. And I, I remembered that there was this moving scene at the end, but you know how when you hadn't seen a movie in a long time, you think, well, what was it? And So you remember the basic story of Saving Private Ryan is that there's this family. It's World War II. There's this family that they've lost all their sons but one in the war, and they are given uh, a company of men, is given the orders from on high, go get this one man. Save him. He is your sole responsibility. Bring him home safely so that the mother doesn't have to deal with the death of all of her sons. And so Tom Hanks leads this group of guys. Uh, He's the captain. He's going out, and and they're going to find this guy. And they get the guy. They have to fight all the way. I mean, it's in Germany. It's, it's, you know, fighting all over the place. They're fighting to and fro. And you get to the end, and you know it's the end because the movie's been going for a long time. And they build up this thing that they've got one last bridge to hold, one last place to cross, and they'll get to a safer place, and they can get forward from there. And in the midst of that battle, while everyone's protecting Ryan, the private Ryan, Tom Hanks sees something out in the middle of the field that they need. So his character stands up and he goes out to the middle of the field. And while he's out there retrieving it, he gets shot. They get him off to the side. They get the medic out there. The medic kind of does some things and it's like, we don't have, we can't. And in the midst of the fighting still going on and them cutting back and forth to Tom Hanks' character going in and out kind of, all of a sudden Ryan comes over and as Private Ryan's coming over, the planes start coming in to bomb the enemy, and you get the sense they're about to be rescued. Private Ryan kind of says that to him. Says, Just hold on. Just hold on. Look, they've sent the planes. We're almost free. And in that moment, Tom Hanks' character whispers something. Ryan can't understand what it is. He kind of looks at him. And so Tom Hanks takes him, pulls him down where his ear is right next to his mouth. And he just says two words. He says the words, earn this. What Tom Hanks meant in that moment was that Private Ryan had done absolutely nothing worthy of being rescued. Not a thing. He was not rescued for any particular bravery he had shown, but a whole company of men had gone and rescued him. And in the midst of rescuing him, their leader had lost his life. And what Tom Hanks is basically saying is, in that movie, the character, is you earn the life you've been given. Here's the thing. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we did absolutely nothing to deserve. The death on the cross, the Father turning away, the veil being split, or the resurrection morning, we didn't do anything to deserve that. But in light of what He's done for us, 
Are you living your wet life in a way to earn what you've been given? That doesn't mean that you earn your salvation. You, you get that. It doesn't mean that you can work hard enough to get it. It just means that you live your life in a way to honor the one who has given his. Perhaps you're here and you're a believer and it is time to start earning this.